Okay, it's good to uh, see all of you here today, uh, especially for those of you who went to church camp. It's especially good to see all of you as well, and uh, especially uh, coming back yesterday, we've been quite tiring, but uh, it's good that we can all come back again to listen to God's word and to worship God together. So let's bow our heads in God, to God in prayer. Dear fathers, we come before you today. Uh, truly, we want to pray that you will, and ask you that you will help us to understand the place of violence and warfare in your word and uh, how to respond to accusations of the, the violence or the perception of violence that comes from religion, especially Christianity. And we pray for all these things, near Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I uh, uh, mix around with uh, some non-Christians very regularly, and the thing that uh, they always seem to uh, taunt me with is, oh, you know, religion is the cause of violence. And it's not just a cause of violence, but the chief cause of violence in the world. And not just today, but in history. And I remember reading as part of my research some of these quotes that uh, some people would talk about. So there's this atheist guy called Sam Harris, and he says, Religion is the most potent source of human conflict past and present. And uh, many people make the case against Christianity, and they say, the Crusades slaughtered millions in the name of Jesus. The Inquisition brought torture and murder of millions more. After Martin Luther, Christians did bloody battle against other Christians for another three centuries. Now today's sermon, I want to ask the question, is that really true? Is that the reality? Uh, is it really true that religion is the cause of violence? Right. Uh, are we to believe that Christianity is the cause of violence in history and the death of millions of people. And I think that, basically, if you are to ask the non-believer, why do they believe this to be true? Because, you know, if you go to listen to talk to some cab driver in London, or you walk around in America and you talk to people, this is one of the common perceptions that they have of religion and Christianity. And what they will say is, oh, well, what about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? And what about what the Old Testament says about violence and war. So let's look first at the issue of the Crusades. Now, uh, this author, James Carroll, uh, calls the Crusades a set of world historical crimes whose tra trail of violence scars the earth and human memory even to this day. Now, if you were to ask a person in the street exactly what were the Crusades, and where did they happen? And why did they happen? And was the church really in charge? And who were the participants in the Crusades? I think very, very few people would have the faintest ideas of, uh, you know, when this happened, why it happened, where it happened, exactly how many people were involved. Now, even if you were to look it up and uh, uh, look at the Crusades, it's, the Crusades was not like one battle, right? So you know, you think of World War Two, you think, well, you know, World War Two was between 1939, 1945. It was, it was here and there. It was between these different people. But the Crusades actually were not so simple. Uh, the Crusades was not just one battle, but a series of battles which raged for more than 200 years, and they happened like not chronologically one after another, but they were like different crusades at different times, and even historians disagree about what constitutes a crusade. But I think it's very important to go back to the very beginning. So, in the early part of the first century, um, the whole of the Middle East was actually quite predominantly Christian. Okay, it was sort of the fall of the Roman Empire, and after that there were lots of Christians all around in modern-day Iraq, in Syria, in Jordan, in Egypt, in Jerusalem, in Israel. So actually, when you look at the newspaper today, it's helpful when you actually do a bit of history because you realize that, you know, sometimes you see and read about uh, Christians who are being persecuted in some of these places like Iraq or Syria or Egypt. And these people are actually the remnants of the original Christians who were there in the first century. Right? Now, in 622, uh, Islam... Uh, started gaining ascendancy and power in this region. Okay, so if you look at this map, you see that they started out in, uh, uh, in Arabia, and then they pushed out further and further, uh, north towards Spain, to Italy, the Balkans, and sort of south into Africa. Okay, so this all this happened from 622 all the way on 
uh, towards the 1000 AD and even further than that. Uh, actually, history is quite interesting. I, I, I didn't realize there was so much uh, conflict during this time. I remember when I went to uh, my tour of Spain, a long, long time ago, I went on the tour of Spain, and I was very surprised to hear the tour guide saying that actually uh, the Muslims ruled Spain longer than America has been independent. So that's a really, really long time, right? You think about it. So the Muslims actually ruled Spain longer than America has been independent. Okay. So what actually began or initiated the first a crusade was, if you look at the next slide, okay, so you see up there, there's the Byzantine Empire. Can you see up on the top there? Okay, so you can click it, it's just there. The Constantinople was the capital of the Byzantine uh, um, Empire. And at this stage, about 1000 uh, AD, Europe was very weak. There was lots of warring factions and everything else. And that, that was one of the causes of why Islam was able to push further and further into Europe because they were very weak. So this guy, okay, whose name was uh, Alexios I, uh, he actually sent an ambassador to the Pope. Right? Because at that time, because, again, if you understand history, because it was so factious during this time and there were so many warring factions, the thing that was sort of uniting everybody was the Catholic Church. So this guy wrote to uh, uh, the Pope at the time and he asked for his support to gather the, the, the various disparate forces in Europe to come to fight against uh, the, the, the Muslim incursions into his country. So um, the Pope responded, and the first crusade happened uh, around then 1095, and in 1099 they captured Jerusalem and uh, uh, parts of that region, and they were very successful. But then over the next 200 years, another six other crusades would happen. So I think the first thing that we have to really notice is that the crusades, in spite of what people think about them, were not primarily expansionist or aggressive. Right? So you know sometimes when people say, oh, what about the crusades? It makes you think of these Christians who are just basically going around killing defenseless people, right? But actually, if you look at the reality of politics and you read books about the crusade, even if you go to Wikipedia, you see that actually it's actually a response to all the political and military expansionism that was happening during the time and the weakness of the European countries. Okay, so first point I want to make is uh, the Crusades, first and foremost, were not expansionist, they were not aggressive, they were not part of empire building, but part of the, the military landscape of the time where people were fighting to defend territory. Okay, so this guy, Edward Gibbon, next slide, he actually argues that if it was not for the Crusades, right, perhaps the Quran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford today. Right? So uh, his argument is that the Crusades actually helped stem the tide of Islam coming to Europe. But I think that it was more, if you look at it, if you look at history, actually nothing is as black and white as you know people say, oh, it's the Crusades, it's just you know these religious people going around killing other defenseless people. Uh, during this period, it's actually called the the Dark Ages, right, or the early medieval period, or early Middle Ages, and this was around 1000 AD. And during this time, the the, the Roman Empire had collapsed, and all these little European states had arisen, and there was lots and lots of chaos, sort of like a you know breakdown of law and order, breakdown of political structures, and again, this was a time where you know, we think of the knights, right? Okay, you know, like a uh, Game of Thrones sort of thing, right? Okay, all these knights. So there was a warring class that had arisen. And this warring class, the knights, basically they depended on war for the economic survival, right? So you need to pay for your your horses, your armory, your, your, arm, your, your armor and everything else. So what they do? Well, they go and pillage, right? They go and pillage villages, they attack churches, they attack innocent people. And they depend on war in order to gain uh, income to support their lifestyle. Right? They, they, they basically look for glory, they look for loot, they look for you know, valor. This is what they live for. Okay? So actually when uh, the Pope, at that time Pope Urban, he, he called on all these uh, various people to come to the aid of the Byzantine Empire to go down and expand into 
the, the Muslim territories. Uh, these were the people who were attracted to it. These were the people who led the Crusades. And that's why actually, even though when uh, the Pope said, okay, if you go there, God will forgive your sins, uh, I don't think they were primarily interested in that. Yes, there were other people who came along who wanted forgiveness and who thought this was a big adventure. But primarily what was on their mind was, what is on a lot of people's mind, is about money. Right? There was money, financial concerns. Because to go down there, you would be able to get loot. And more than that, basically, they could carve out land holdings. right? So, you know, you conquer land so I can sort of make my own estate. And this could be like a mine. Right? I can create my own minor kingdom uh, in the areas that I conquer. So when you think about the Crusades, actually there was a lot of bad things that happened during the Crusades. Not just to uh, the areas in which they conquered down south in the Muslim areas, but even within the Christian areas. So in the first crusade, when they made their way through Europe, going all the way down to the Middle East, they actually fought other Christians in Hungary. Right? Because this, can you imagine, like, okay, imagine Singapore, right? You have these random army people coming through on their way to somewhere else. I mean, I don't think Singapore government would like that very much, right? So we'll fight them off, isn't it? So again, when the, the Crusades formed and they sort of went through neighboring countries, some of these Christian countries, they, they didn't like them because when they go through, they pillage, they take all your food, they rape your women. So then they would fight them. And then obviously, because of the people who made up uh, the Crusades, they killed a lot of Jews as they made their way around uh, to go down to the Middle East. And this is where, I guess, the Crusades also got a very bad reputation because it was... Uh, I guess a reflection of the anti-Semitism that was happening. And, and, and because during this time, the Jews were gaining a lot of economic power, uh, they, there was a lot of resentment. And many, many Jews and many uh, German cities were actually killed uh, by these crusaders. In the Fourth Crusade, the later crusades actually got worse and worse. right? So in the Fourth Crusade, it was really interesting because they were supposed to go down and what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to to attack the, the Muslims in the south, right? But instead of doing that, they sort of got um, uh, hijacked for commercial reasons. And the merchants of Venice, you know Venice, right? was like the big merchant capital at the time. They got them to attack their rivals in the port of Zara. You know Zara, the, fa- the, the fashion chain, right? Okay, So the, the actually, it's a Spanish port. So the, the, the merchants of Venice actually paid them, the crusaders, said, okay, look, since you're on your way down to attack these people, why don't you attack our commercial rivals and Zara instead? Okay, And while you're at it, uh, some other Byzantine king got them to attack Constantinople as well. Right? So you can sort of see that the Crusaders, they're not really driven by religious reasons, but they were driven a lot by commercial reasons. right? So you know, it's like, okay, you want us to attack Zara? All right, we'll do it for you. You want us to attack Constantinople? We'll attack it for you as well. Right, so these are real historical events. You can look it up in the internet. And the last crusade, which is the sixth crusade, was actually led by uh, this guy, uh, King Frederick, who was actually excommunicated by the Pope and actually had no support from the church at all. Okay, so when people say that, um, oh, you know, uh, the crusades, the crusades, the crusades is not just one event or one war, one army, but it was a whole series of sort of armed struggles in the 200 200 year period. And a lot of it was actually driven by financial and monetary uh, purposes. It's not just, oh, I believe in God, therefore I'm going to fight. Now the other problem was that, again, it wasn't just purely religious, but political. You see, when Pope Urban in 10,095 called everybody to let's go and fight and support the Byzantine Empire, uh, he wasn't doing it just because, you know, he was... I mean, yes, there was an element where he wanted to, to defend the Christians who were being persecuted, so to speak. But a lot of it was because of a struggle between the, the church and all these war, like these smaller nation states. Okay? Because actually 10 years before Pope Urban II called for the First Crusade, there was another Pope called Pope Gregory VII who wanted to excommunicate 
another king, and that king actually came and invaded Italy and kicked them out, right? So during this period, there was lots and lots of fighting between uh, the church and the, 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 the states. So what the Crusades actually were, to a certain degree, was a desire for power. See, because if I can call on people to go and fight on my behalf, then, and I can control them to a certain degree, then I'm powerful, right? So when the Pope calls for all these military fighting knights to come and fight for them, and he fights, they fight for him instead of the states in which they live in, then, in a sense, the church has more power than the states, isn't it? So this uh, historian said, uh, the political struggle for power between the popes and emperors would inform the religiously inspired violence of the crusading period. Both sides were competing for political supremacy in Europe, and that gained that meant gaining the, uh, the monopoly on violence. So when we talk about the Crusades, right? First of all, we must be very clear that it was started for defensive purposes. It's not as if you know these Christians were just going out there and bashing people for no reason. The second one was that it wasn't so much for religious reasons, but it was also motivated for monetary and financial reasons. Okay, if you go and look it up, uh, it was very interesting, right? Because when the Byzantine Empire called the Crusaders to go down, they said, okay, when you go and conquer all these people, we make you sign this document that whatever you conquer is actually ours, right? But then when they want to conquer all those stuff, they never gave it back to the empire. They, they sort of set up their own little kingdoms in the Middle East, right? So a lot of it was due for monetary political and power reasons. And it was also a political struggle between the states and the Catholic Church. But I think the most important thing that I want to bring to you uh, as you struggle with this issue, if you talk to people, is that actually warfare has always been a fact of human life. Okay, I want you to remember that warfare has always been a fact of human life. And I think we are foolish to believe that it's not solar. So I was uh, reading some books on history of war, and they said that, you know, the earliest cities in history, they found walls, okay? And these cities have walls not to protect them from animals or anything, but they have walls to protect them from other human beings, right? So the earliest human settlements, the cities, they always have walls to protect them from other humans, and that's because humans have been fighting one another since the creation of cities, since the creation of people coming together. And the thing is, together with the formation of cities and wars and uh, protection, is the fact that in almost every society, every civilization will invoke their own gods to justify uh, political power, military power, <clears throat> and war. So I remember this very very shocking statement someone wrote, right? They said, look, said when, when people say religion is responsible for more war, more suffering, and more oppression than any other human institution, uh, people really have to ask the question, uh, more than what? Right? Because the modern secular state that we live in, or we think of nation states today, only came into existence between the 17th and 18th century. Right, so before the 17th, 18th century, every state, particularly in the West, was associated with a divine mandate. There was a, there was a state religion, a state god, there was a divine mandate for rule. Whether you lived in the Middle East, whether you lived in the West, whether you lived in Asia, they, they always had a national religion or a god, right? And that was always invoked in terms of to legitimize political power and to legitimize war. So when you think of, oh, okay, religion is responsible for all wars, well, to a certain degree, before the coming of, you know, the French Revolution or the American Revolution, everything before that, people used to invoke religion and God in order to go to war. Right? So you can, it's something that would be alien for people living many years ago to say that, oh, that that there was no God. Everybody believed in the God. Every country believed in their own national God. And when they went to war, they believed that their own national God was behind them. So it's a meaningless statement when you say religion is the cause of all wars. Because in the past, uh, everybody was religious and every state was religious. But actually what, 
we also need to say to people is, do you think that the coming of the atheist, secular nation states has led to less war? Right? Because you know people say, oh, religion is the cause of all war. So then you're saying now that if we have no religion, like you know, like John Lennon, right? If we have no religion, no God, nobody will fight. That can't be true, right? Because in World War One, which have, has no religious implications, right? I mean, it was just Christian countries fighting against Christian countries. Thirty-eight million people were killed. In World War Two, again, there was no religious uh, significance in any of the fighting. Fifty million to eighty million people were killed. Okay, Stalin, who was a, a atheist, communist, was responsible for 20 million deaths. Mao was responsible for 70 million deaths. Hitler killed 6 million Jews, and Pol Pot killed 1 to 3 million people. Now, people estimate that the Crusades, right, the Inquisition, the witch burnings, uh, probably killed only about 200,000 people. Even if you extrapolate it based on... Uh, on population increase, that's equivalent to only 1 million people. So that means that Christianity as a religion was responsible for 1 million people killed in a 500 year period, whereas the secular states of today, or the secular wars of today, are responsible for over 100 million deaths in one century. Right? right? And just, sorry, not one century, in, in one, in, uh, in five decades, sorry. So in 50 years, 100 million people have died without any religious implications. So this is a secular state is going to war. Secular modern nation states go to war. Whereas when people say, oh, look at the Crusades, right? Well, that's like, that's like a, a drop in the ocean. Right? Looking at like 1 million people compared to 100 million people. And this is like over 200, 300 years compared to 5 Decades of secular nation states going to war. So there's um there's a book that was written. Oh, you can't see it very well. I got this from the net. But it's called the Encyclopedia of Wars, where uh, these authors survey 1,800 conflicts. And what they found is that less than 10% of the 1,800 conflicts that they've surveyed have have religious impl- components to it. Okay, so you look at the graph. Uh, that's quite helpful, right? So you can see that the non-religious wars actually far, far outweigh uh, religious wars. And uh, this uh, atheist guy uh, said this. Actually, if you go to the internet, there's, there's an interesting thing done by the BBC, and it's called God and War. Okay, if you Google it, you can find it. BBC God and War, where they actually audit the last three hundred, the three thousand five hundred years of war, and they try to find out how much of it had a religious motivation. Right? So even by the BBC standard, they found that no more than 60%, sorry, that more than 60% had no religious motivation and less than 7% earned a rating greater than 7. That means like uh, full-scale religious uh, war, right? So there was very little religious motivation in the internecine Russian-Chinese conflicts or the world wars responsible for the history's most lethal century of international bloodshed. So I think what I want to encourage you is when people say to you, oh, what about the Crusades, right? What about the Crusades? You should really ask them, what about the Crusades, right? Okay, we, we, it's like, it happened over the span of 200, 300, 400 years, less than 200,000 people killed. Uh, It was defensive, it was political, it was monetary. But what about World War One? What about World War Two? What about Stalin? What about Mao? What about Pol Pot? What about Hitler? If you want to talk about religious and Christianity killing people, what about secular atheist nation states which go to war and kill one another? Now, another thing that people often say to you is, oh, what about the Inquisitions, you know? The Inquisitions saw how cruel, uh, I guess the Christian churches, you know, they went around Killing people. Actually, if you go to the internet, if you go, you put inquisitions and you put images, right? You have all these terrible tortures and everything coming out, right? So you, people get the idea that the church exists to just torture people. Now, the inquisition actually took place mainly in Spain, okay, and uh, across 
Europe, France, and Portugal. Oh, no, I need to give you this quote, right? So, okay, wait. So this quote, people believe that millions of people were killed by the Inquisition. Millions of people were tortured by the Inquisition, right? Okay? You can actually go to the internet. There's actually these famous actors, Hollywood actors who make all these quotes or so, but I thought I'd better not put them there. But, but people believe, you know, millions of people were persecuted and tortured uh, under the Inquisition. But that's not really true. Okay, first of all, the Inquisition was not to persecute Jewish people. Okay, that's a myth. People sometimes say, oh, you know the Inquisition, they used the Inquisition to persecute Jewish people. But that's not true. Actually, the Inquisition was formed to persecute Christians who held views which were deemed heretical. Okay, so it was not about Jews. If anything, it was about Jews who had become Christians, okay, especially in, in Spain. Okay, uh, there's another part of history you have to read out about it. But for Jews that had become Christians, uh, they were, they were subject to the Inquisition. In fact, the Grand Inquisitor of Spain himself, this guy called Thomas de Torquemada, he was actually part Jewish. Okay, so it wasn't a persecution towards Jews, it was those who were Christians or deemed themselves Christians. And apparently the most common penance was fasting or like community service. Okay, so it wasn't as if, you know, once you're taken in for inquisition, you know, it's like going to the Siberian labor camp, that's it for you, right? Most people just had fasting or community service. So historians say that between 1,500 and 4,000 people were killed in the inquisition. 1,500 to 4,000 people. And the period of the Inquisition lasted 350 years. And it was in mainly France, Portugal, and Spain. Right? So, you think about it, 4,000 people over 350 years in what would be mostly Central Europe. Now, it is tragic that people were killed for their, I guess, their, their, their beliefs right or wrong in a Christian sense. But how does this compare to how atheist people persecute people? I mean, Stalin, right? I mean, and Mao, and Hitler, they killed millions of people in, in decades. Right? When you consider uh, that Pol Pot killed two million people in four years, uh, what's 4,000 people in 350 years. Right? So if people come and say to you, hey, what about the Inquisition, right? You should ask them exactly how many people did the Inquisition kill? And how long did it take? Because when people say, oh, it's such a bad thing, then they're actually not got the facts right. right? The Inquisition compared to the modern uh, killings of today is, is nothing. It is really, really nothing. Now, the last thing that um, troubles people, and this is where I think uh, it's, we need to concentrate a bit more because it's not just history, is what the Bible says about war. Okay, this, Because, you know, when people read the Bible, they say, hey, how come God is such a, a cruel God? When he asked his people to go into his promised land, he asked them to wipe out all the people, the women, the children, even the animals. Right, so in Deuteronomy chapter 7, okay, so when the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Again, uh, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, however in the cities of the nations the Lord has given you as inheritance, do not leave anything, alive anything that breathes, completely destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now, these were very, very clear instructions of God to His people as they entered the promised land, and people are very troubled by them. 
They say, how can God be so bloodthirsty? This is, uh, this is like genocide, you know, like when people, uh, kill a specific race. And this is indeed what God's people did when they first entered into the land. So the first city in the promised land that they conquered was Jericho, right? So what happened in Jericho? Well, in Jericho it says, Now Jericho was totally shut up because of the Israelites, and no one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. So when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, and everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. And they devoted the city to the Lord, and destroyed the sword, everything in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Okay, so that was the first city. The second city that the Israelites conquered was the city of Ai. And what happened in Ai? Okay, then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the, the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and his king as you did to Jericho and his king. Except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for you. Set an ambush behind the city. So when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and the desert where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and, and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. Now, I think that when we went to the book of Joshua, when we went to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, perhaps that doesn't sort of disturb us, you know, because we're sort of doing the narrative, but but to the non-Christian, when they read this sort of stuff, they sort of think, how can you believe in such a bloodthirsty God? How can you believe in such a destructive God? What happened to Jesus Christ, you know? What's happening here? They're killing everybody, not just the fighting men, but the, the, the women and the children and the animals. This is like a war crime. Right? So how do we respond to these accusations when, when people say, how can you believe in this sort of God? This is a, it's a bloodthirsty God. Right. Well, I think the first thing we have to realize, and I think this is very important, so you have to pay attention, is that God judges people with mass destruction. Right. God is a weapon of mass destruction. All right. He kills people in judgment and mass. And actually, when you read the book of Genesis all the way through to the people in the time of Israel. God does that in judgment of sin. So right at the very beginning, you know, you had Adam and Eve, then Cain turned bad, then his children turned bad. And God was really grieved. Okay, So in Genesis chapter 6, remember, when civilization starts coming about, man's wickedness gets worse and worse. Right, The Lord sees how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And every inclination and thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord had, was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved I have made them. So from the very beginning in Genesis 6, when God is grieved and judgment comes, he is he, willing to kill on a massive scale. Okay, So how does he kill? In the very next chapter, Right, he brings the great flood and he kills every single living thing on earth, right, except for Noah. But then that doesn't end there. Because in Genesis chapter 19 again, when he sees the wickedness and sin and rebellion of Sodom and Gomorrah, what does he do? He destroys the whole city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so mass judgment is taking place. And that's the same thing that happens when God's people come into the promised land. Right? When God's people come into the promised land, God is not using water, God is not using sulfur, but God is using His people to bring judgment for the wickedness of the people in the land. So in Deuteronomy chapter 9, this is the reason why we are told that God wants to annihilate and drive out and kill all the people in the promised land. So in verse 1 he says, 
Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know them and have heard it said, Who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. See, so the first thing that we have to understand is that the destruction of the people in the land is not senseless violence, it's not meaningless violence, but it's actually part of God's judgment. Except God is now using His people to bring judgment on the people in the land. So when actually people have a problem with a with an angry, destructive God in the Old Testament, the, the problem that they have is so so much the destruction. But I think the problem that they have is the problem of judgment. Should God have a right to destroy and judge people in this way? That is the problem that the secular, non-believing person has when they read of these things. Does God have a right to destroy people, a mass of people, this way because they are sinful? And the answer must be yes, because He is the judge. That's the first thing we read in the Bible, right? God is the judge. Right from the flood, right from Sodom and Gomorrah, God is the judge. He will judge people for sin. But the problem is, in the world that we live in, that is a very, very impolite thing to say. So a few weeks ago, Rory Bell, the guy who came to speak at our children's church youth conferences, he said that he went to a a Scandinavian country, I won't tell you which one, in case uh, I get in trouble, but he said that he was speaking to the pastors in this Scandinavian country, Okay, Scandinavia is like Norway, Sweden, these sort of countries, and the pastor said that it is very hard to be a Christian in those countries, very hard to evangelize in those Christians in those countries. Why? Because it's very impolite to talk about sin. Very impolite to talk about judgment. Very impolite to talk about death and hell. And this is the sort of mindset which rejects the idea that God kills people in this way because of judgment. Right? But the problem is, actually, when you see mass judgment in this way, mass killing in this way, it's actually warning people that this is what judgment is really like. This is what judgment is like. Judgment, at the last day, it will be a terrible, horrible thing. If we are shocked because of what God does in the promised land or in the flood, then the last day will be just as shocking to us. Right? Listen to the words of Revelation. And how he describes what happens in the last day. And, and, and see whether it is not a shocking thing. Right? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the dead, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in it. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The, the lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, judgment is a frightening, horrible thing. And when we see 
God's people bringing God's judgment on the people of the land, uh, we should either say, oh, you know, this is a really, really terrible thing and I want to avoid it. Or we have to see, this is the horror of God's judgment visited on people who do not return to Him. So I remember a few weeks ago when we were going through these talks, uh, someone was actually sharing with me that they brought their friend to the church and after the sermon they were talking and they were saying, you know, why should I want to go to heaven? I want to go to hell where all my friends are. But you see, when people say things like that, it means they don't understand the horror of hell. They don't understand the horror of judgment. They don't understand the horror of God's wrath. You know, in Hebrews chapter 30, it says, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. See, so when we see the, the destruction, the mass destruction of cities, of peoples, and we think that's terrible. Well, it's actually a warning to us to say, well, God, when He brings judgment on us, is a horrible thing, and I want to avoid it. See, if you look at the back, uh, we have some books on sale for evangelism, and, and I, I, I was just flicking through it before the sermon today, and one of them is about uh, having a frank look at Jesus, right? And I was reading the back, and the back said, you know, for the world today, when they see Jesus, they see him as a very meek, mild person. I think at the back they said some people see him as a pacifist or a philanthropist, right? You know, just a very kindly person. But out of the words of Jesus, this uh, philanthropist, pacifist, come the most uh, unpacifist and unkind uh, words, right? Because he speaks the most about hell and the horrors of hell. Right? So. These are all red letters, okay, in the, in the Bible. So, I mean, in a sense, it's all words of Jesus. And he just says, right? Right? When, 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 when you come to be judged, what's going to happen is like being burned in fire as in the end of the age. You'll be weeded out and you'll be thrown to a fairy furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing your teeth. Right? It'll be, it'll be like being cut to pieces and, uh, being assigned a place to the hypocrites where they'll be weeping and gnashing your teeth. And where it is better to cut off your foot or to pluck out your eye because the horrors of hell are so great. Because hell is where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. See, hell and judgment is a horrible thing. And that's why when we look at the Bible and people say, oh, look at all this destruction in the Bible. It's actually meant to show us the horrors of God's judgment visited on those who reject him. And that's why the second thing that we have to say about the, the violence in the Bible is that people think that God killed those people in the promised land to get rid of them, right? Let's clear this place so that we can, uh, we can have a new place to live in. Uh, actually, it's no different from Hitler. H Hitler had this policy where, you know, uh, if you go and study history, they needed one of the philosophies he had was they needed living space. I can't remember the German name for it. Someone can tell me. <clears throat> they needed living space. So to get living space, what do you do? You get rid of all the other people living there and then you you can you can move in, right? So maybe that's what God was doing. You know, the promised land, he was trying to get rid of all these people so that his people could move in, right? But actually, that's not what the Bible says, right? That's not genocide. It's not It's not genocide at all because actually... God applied the very same rules of holiness to the people who moved in. Right? When they moved in, God said <clears throat> to the Israelites, if you follow the lifestyle of the people that uh, you judged, I will judge you too. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because God's people living in God's land under God's law were expected to live under the same rules of the Holy God. He would not tolerate in his own people the sins of the people, the original inhabitants. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 13, right? And we will think that this is very, very, again, uh, very brutal. Very, I think for the modern man, we just kind of accept what he's saying here. But this is God's standard. If your very own brother, your own son, your own daughter or the wife you love or the closest friend 
secretly entices you saying, Hey, let us go and worship other gods. Gods that neither you nor your fathers have known. Gods of the people around you, neither near or far. From one end of the land to the other. Do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Pity, do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Imagine your child or your wife or your best friend, right? Your hand must be the first in putting him to death and then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death because he has tried to turn away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. You see, the standard of God's judgment was just as harsh and just as 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 demanding as it, for the people, his own people as it was to the previous inhabitants. And that's why, one of the reasons why they had to destroy the people there so thoroughly was because God knew that they would be tempted to, to wickedness, tempted towards sin, tempted towards rebellion against him. And as we know through the history of God's people, that's exactly what happened. When you go through the book of Judges, you see that because of their failure to obey Deuteronomy 13, the failure to obey God and to exercise judgment on the people there, they actually adopted all the practices of the previous inhabitants there and they became just as wicked. So in the book of Judges, you have mass killing of innocent people. You have gang rape, homosexual and heterosexual. You have assassinations, you have adultery, you have sexual morality, you have prostitution. And Judges chapter 21 verse 25 ends with these words, right? In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And I think that the author of Judges put this in not to say that they needed a human king, but they recognized no authority in their life. And it was to show that actually at the, by the end of the book of Judges, God's people are no better than the inhabitants before them. They were just as wicked, just as idolatrous, and just as sinful. Now, one very, very helpful thing that uh, I, I found in this book called Sex and Violence in the Bible was, it said, most sermons in churches have a G rating, right? Yeah, G rating only. It said, but when you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, it has an M18 rating. Because the contents in the description are really quite uh, shocking. And it sort of asks the question, why why is the Bible so shocking? Why is it so violent? Why is it filled with such violent people? You think of even like the heroes, right? Like like uh, Samson, going to take jawbone, knock out all these people and kill them, right? And then go and sleep, prostitutes, and then go and cut off people's ears and foreskins and things. Why, 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 why so violent, right? Kind of take some chamomile tea and relax or something, right? Why are they all so violent? Well, I think that the Bible is actually meant to show us the horror of sin. Right? These people, God's own people, have become as wicked, as depraved, as sinful as the original inhabitants. And this is who we really are. This is what humanity is about. Humanity without God is full of lust and violence. Uh, you know, this, this is what we are. And the Bible doesn't show us violence to amuse us. Actually, the, you know the word amuse literally means without thinking, right? You know, you watch TV now, you listen to songs, you, you see media. There is violence everywhere. But this violence is meant to amuse us and to entertain us. But the violence in the Bible is to show us the horror of our own depravity and wickedness. Uh, someone... Uh, he shared in the book of how someone he knew actually went from a skeptic to a believer because he said that the Bible could not be written by a human because it shows us our humanity uh, too plainly. It actually shows us what we really are, our sinfulness. And it's by realizing how sinful we are, the violence that is inherent within us, the sin that is inherent within us, that the Old Testament actually is trying to show us that we are in need of a Savior, that we cannot save ourselves. 
So when someone comes up to you and says, you know, why is the Bible so violent? Why is the Old Testament so violent? You should, you should actually answer them and say, because that's what we really are like. This is who we really are when we live without God. When you have uh, people like Stalin or Mao who can kill up to like a hundred million people, when you can have a modern nation state like Germany who can send six million Jews to the gas chamber, right? when you have uh, you know, the last century which has had more people killed than the centuries before. This is who we are. We are violent people. We are sinful people. And we actually need to see that as a reality and stop thinking that we are such good people who can save ourselves. But to recognize that we actually need a savior to save us because uh, it's just like what God said in Genesis, right? It's like our hearts are filled uh, with sin all the time. So I think that as we Reflect on this thing. If anybody comes and speaks to you about the violence of religion and everything and of Christianity, I hope that you'll be able to reply to them and say, well, crusades, well, what's the crusades? Right. Is it really what you think it is? Or the Inquisition, is it as bad as you think it is? And point them to the, to the reality of today and say, look at the violence of the secular, uh, non-religious world in the last century and say, well, this is who we really are. This is the stark reality of our own rebellion against God. And it shows all the more that we need Jesus Christ to save us from these sins. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that many of the commonly held views of the world are inherently false and historically untrue. That Christianity... It's not responsible for the violence of this world. It's not responsible for millions of deaths or for uh, wars through history. But rather, it is because man is violent, mankind is violent, and that they may use religion to justify or legitimize or invoke God to give them uh, the divine mandate to exercise their sinfulness and wickedness. Dear Father, as we interact with the world, we pray for your wisdom to be in us so that when we talk to people about these things, that we can actually ask them the hard questions and say, where has the world been? How has the world gone now that uh, they've taken God out of the equation? To see the, the mindless killing of millions, hundreds of millions in the last century. To be able to, to, to show them uh, that the horror of judgment that we see in the Bible is real. and They need to avoid it. And to see that in so many ways, uh, if we were able to see our hearts like you see our hearts, you will see violence, you will see wickedness, you will see depravity, you will see sin. And to help us to then earnestly turn to Jesus for He is the only one who can bring forgiveness to our sins and real healing and peace in our relationships. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.